A baseball game, a day in a park with friends and family, fishing in a remote stream, work, travels, providing for loved ones, or heading out for adventures. Whatever you do, whatever you enjoy, you need your health. The original Guide to Men's Health is presented by the Washington State Urology Society to help take you through the steps necessary to get the most out of life. If you have invested in a retirement plan for your future, why not invest in your body? After all, it makes better sense to retire healthy and enjoy your future. These podcasts are a guide for how to take care of yourself. If you take care of your car and maintain it, why not do the same for your personal machine and your body? If you know you should but haven't yet, the information in these podcasts contains some easy recommendations for where, when, and how to get started. Follow the podcast as we explore men's health with renowned experts and embark on a journey towards better health. On today's episode of the original Guide to Men's Health, we're fortunate to be with Dr. Tom Walsh. Tom is an associate professor of urology at the University of Washington and director of the University of Washington Men's Health Center. Dr. Walsh received his MD from Northwestern University and served his urological residency at the University of Washington. He then completed a fellowship in male infertility and erectile dysfunction at the University of California, San Francisco, where he then served as the director of the UCSF Center for Male Reproductive Health. He then returned to the University of Washington and, as mentioned, is currently the director of UW Men's Health Center. We also are fortunate to have Annie Kuo. Annie Kuo is Washington State's ambassador for Resolve, the National Infertility Association. In 2015, Annie brought Resolve's presence back to Seattle by launching a monthly general infertility support group that she hosted for four years. Since then, the number of peer-led support groups in Western Washington has grown to 10, all run independently by volunteers. Annie currently convenes the group for third-party reproduction in Ballard. She has noted that male factor infertility is absolutely half of the hundreds of patients she has met. She also supports the infertility community through legislative advocacy at the federal level. This May will be her fifth time at the Infertility Advocacy Day in D.C., where she helps lead the training of advocates. Professionally, Annie is Director of Public Relations for University of Washington OBGYN. She's on the UW Men's Health Council and raises awareness about men's health with the Department of Urology. So welcome, Dr. Walsh and Annie. Today we're going to address infertility, and I always like to start with what is infertility, and so we're going to be speaking about male factor infertility, understanding that it takes two. Yeah. So, Dr. Walsh, give us a little background into what you consider male factor infertility. Well, so infertility, uh, by definition, is the inability of a couple, despite appropriate effort to conceive in a one-year period of time. Um, it's, it's a little arbitrary, but it's what's clinically significant to couples. Um, we consider male factor infertility when there's an identifiable cause on the male side that we can clearly determine is at least somewhat causative. And if you were to break down 
statistics regarding infertility. So in the United States, about anywhere from 15 to 17 percent of couples of reproductive age will experience infertility. And we believe that about half of those couples will have some male factor. Maybe 20%, 20 to 30%, it'll be male alone, and the rest is contributory or, or multifactorial between the couple. I've seen some patients who hadn't even attempted fertility yet, but are interested in finding out if there's going to be an issue. Is that appropriate for them to start at that point? Oh, absolutely. Those are my favorite people. You know, there are, I mean, I, I'll let Aunt Annie yeah. chime in, but I think... I'm pretty sure there used to be a schoolhouse rock about this, something about, you know, the more you know, I don't, I don't know whose phrase that was, but uh, the more informed I think couples can be heading into their reproductive years, the more control they have and the more options they will have. Yeah, people who are interested in learning about their fertility before they've even tried to conceive seem like they're very fertility conscious and aware, and that's refreshing because I can't tell you how many guys I know who they haven't even tried to get someone pregnant and they're like oh that's not going to be a problem for me you know but there's really no symptoms to male infertility you can't tell from um, an erection or ejaculate that you don't have sperm you can't tell from any particular physical symptoms that there might be an issue it's only until you have a medical test that you can find these things out or, you know, find them out for sure. Yeah, I mean, what I would say is that there clearly are some medical conditions that men may have been informed by their parents. They may know from their, their experience in the medical world that this is something that could contribute to infertility. There are conditions that boys are born with. They undergo corrective surgery. They may have some idea that there could be an issue. Shockingly, there are many young men who have these conditions and have never been taught that they may contribute to their infertility. So there are some health conditions, and it's, it's worth talking about them, that, that men will absolutely experience infertility. And the earlier they come to somebody's attention like me, the faster we can help them or at least assuage their fears and, and create a plan for them. That is true. I have come across some men in our groups who said they had like undescended testicles yeah they had some birth defect so they knew very early on and had conversations with their partners that there might be issues in trying to conceive so that came from early in there yeah those are great those are great examples there are genetic diagnoses perhaps people have heard of a disease called cystic fibrosis cystic fibrosis has a genetic component that specifically disables men from being able to conceive naturally, yet with help from a specialist or a team of specialists, those men can conceive too. So we have a couple, and they are either pre-attempt and want to be screened, or they've been attempting and haven't had success. What sort of evaluation would they be looking at initially? So I would start by saying that most physicians or practitioners in the reproductive realm would always encourage a couple to imagine a simultaneous evaluation where no single partner is, not one partner is singled out. For a man, since we're talking about male infertility, the cornerstone of a male fertility evaluation is typically an interview talking about health history, past, prior surgeries, diseases they've experienced, drugs they take, some of them prescription, 
some of them self-prescribed, a physical exam that specifically focuses on their male characteristics and their genitalia, and then, importantly, the test that, that Annie alluded to, which is called a semen analysis, which is essentially examining the, the contents of a man's ejaculate to quantify and to qualify their sperm. So in a initial evaluation, would that be something that you'd recommend being done by a specialist? You know, it's a, it's a really good question. I think, I really believe that men need to seek health care where it's available and where it's comfortable. In an ideal world, I would love to expose all men to a specialized center like we have, where really pointed questions can be asked and really specific testing can be done at the point of care. I acknowledge that that kind of care isn't available everywhere, so I think it's important for general health providers to have some baseline knowledge of this. There was a time in you know, Western culture where it was assumed that all fertility issues resided with the female, and there was a very much a neglect of male factor in fertility. I think that that needle is swinging, that bar is swinging. But I think talking with a general doctor, if that's who's available, is very appropriate. We have seen an evolution, really, in the ability to help men in the sense that going back to when I was in training, if a man had no sperm, there was very, very, very little we could do. And that means on the semen analysis that they produced, there was fluid, but no visible sperm seen. And really, we looked at those men and said, you need to adopt. Now in this day and age, we have the ability to help men who have low counts, and we have the ability to help some men who have no sperm. Want to elucidate a little further about uh, what we can do? Well, I'm not the medical expert, but I have by hearsay heard what some of the men in, say, both the general infertility support group and the third-party reproduction support group have experienced in seeking treatment. Um, on one extreme is what the third party guys call the nutcracker surgery. <laughs> or is it TC? Tessie. Well, <laughs> That's one extreme. Sounds like I you better sounds like I better jump, jump in here. In here. <laughs> so I think this is a good time for some statistics. So let's go back to where we started. So we talked about fifteen percent of all couples, half of them being a male contribution, and of those men where there is this contributing factor, one in 10 of those men will have no sperm in their ejaculate. And, and these are the men that you're talking about that not, not more than 30 years ago, there was no hope, there were no options. Today, we know that at least half of those men may actually be manufacturing sperm within the testicle. We know that we have really advanced techniques where we can find those sperm, where we can extract those sperm, and those men can go on to successfully father pregnancies using advanced reproductive technologies with an exceptionally high success rate. For some of these men, the pathway is, is easier than others. But those are, you know, if some we talk about what is the most amazing advance in medicine, there have been many, and they and in this era they happen. It seems like we're hearing about them almost every day, but the advances in reproductive care are unbelievable. Yeah, and I spoke on one extreme, but the other extreme is that 
even with male factor infertility, some of these advances in reproductive medicine are so great that it almost seems for some couples who might have minor male factor that IVF is great for male factor and it's harder for female factor infertility where perhaps there's an egg quality issue but for sperm issues you that's that's why it's so great to have um, what ICSI where they in, directly inject the sperm yeah. into the egg so IVF bypass the fallopian yeah. in vitro fertilization yeah mm-hmm. and then ICSI actually taking a sperm that yeah. you may have derived from the testicle through exploration yeah so back really it was mid to late 90s so we have this layer of technology called in vitro fertilization this is where women a woman is given drugs to stimulate ovulation you know normally a woman would ovulate one egg per month this causes her to hyperovulate these eggs are extracted from her they are matured in a pristine laboratory environment and in traditional IVF you know I'd like to think that you take the eggs in a petri dish you've got the sperm in a dish a little bit of mood music and may the best sperm win finding an egg they do that, play music that the does fertility that and that does require a lot of sperm though it requires a lot of normal behaving sperm but it was really in the mid to late 90s that it was discovered that it, it turns out when you had very very few sperm and even sperm that weren't fully matured but had their normal genetic complement sperm that maybe came directly from the source taken directly from the testicle it was discovered those sperm with assistance were also capable of fertilizing an egg, maintaining the growth of an embryo, and developing into a healthy pregnancy. And this is the technology that we use to help many men today, many couples today. So in the quest to resolve fertility issues, it can be stressful, significant stressor on relationship sometimes. Annie, you want to speak about some of what you've encountered in some of the support groups? Sure. Yes, infertility is a very stressful life event, and for many couples who are going through it together, it can sometimes be the first test of their marriage, or partnership, you know, that they're going through together, the obstacle that they have to overcome. Some studies have shown that infertility is as stressful as cancer. You know, it's like a never-ending roller coaster. Every month there's highs and lows that you ride. When, you know, the woman gets her period and is not pregnant yet again, but you, then you ride the wave of hope and it comes crashing down. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a ride people want to get off of. So when we have people come to us in these support groups, and thankfully we have a lot of couples come together. I always love the men who approach, you know, men who who reach out on behalf of the couple. Because in fertility treatment, a lot of times, unless there's very serious male factor issues, the woman is going through a a lot of the treatment, right? The male provides the sample in lots of routine cases, but the woman is the one who's having the drugs injected into her body, having the egg retrieval surgical procedure done, going under anesthesia. So um, when men can play an active role as a partner in the infertility journey and pursuit of resolution, it's really great. It's great to kind of even the playing field. Um, We have a lot of couples in our resolve support groups that come, and I have, as in the intro, seen 
it really play out as half female factor, half male factor. And then in the cases where neither of these factors are identified, it's usually a combination of male and female factor or just completely unexplained infertility. But they're coming to find community. There's often an, a visible sense of relief that I can see on their faces that they're not alone and that there are other men and there are other women who are going through this other couples who are on this roller coaster together and so we try to provide them with mutual support and even social outlets so that they can forge lifelong friendships over this kind of bonded experience life experience that everybody's going through so if a couple was looking for a resource online, they could go to Resolve? Yes, resolve.org is where they can connect to three different platforms of free support. The first one is an online discussion board forum on inspire.com. That's it's an infertility section hosted by Resolve. Inspire.com is a health and wellness platform, and there is a Resolve-hosted section. There's also in-person support groups the second platform support is in-person support groups, and they can be found by searching for your zip code on resolve.org, and it will point you to the group or groups nearest you. And the third platform support is a helpline. This is a voicemail system where people can leave a message and within 24 to 48 hours get a call back. Their call is put into you know one of say eight to 12 buckets and then a volunteer from across the country will call call you right back so there are three different ways it's sort of you know pick your uh, pick and pick and choose from the buffet of how you feel most comfortable receiving support and some people don't feel as comfortable sitting around in a circle but they can do a phone call some folks uh, you know myself included feel very comfortable having electronic pen pals to talk about your diagnosis and Resolve just really tries to offer different platforms for people to find support. So Dr. Walsh. Since this is the guide to men's health, you know, one of the things that I want to point out is something that Annie alluded to, which is some of the specific stressors that are associated with male factor infertility. And this is this is something that's been studied in the academic environment to sort of how do how do couples are experiencing fertility issues related to the male factor, how do they compare to couples who are experiencing fertility to unknown factors or to female factors? And it turns out when you compare those buckets of individuals, the stress on relationships, on marital aspects, and on sexual function are actually much worse in couples where fertility issues have been ascribed to the male factor. I think that's really important for everyone to know. Now, I don't know that we know why that is. I think we could hypothesize a lot of different things, but we see this insinuating itself into how couples progress through their treatment, and I think it's really important for physicians and support groups to be aware of. Now, I know there's uh, issues of various etiologies or multifactorial reasons why somebody might have infertility on the male side, but a lot of patients seek homeopathic remedies, herbal remedies, they go to the store or they see something on TV that can improve their infertility. There are certain things that need to be corrected, such as a varicocele with a low count. So you should get evaluated before you go to supplements. But let's say somebody has a lower count, yeah. doesn't have anything obvious on exam. Are there supplements that are useful or not? Well, 
So, of course, you'd love a simple answer, wouldn't you? <laughs> we talked about this incredible advance in the treatment of infertility, right? This incredible toolbox that we have to help couples. But what, if I were to pose the question, are there any U.S. Food and Drug Administration approved drugs for the treatment of male infertility low count, the answer is no. Are there any on the horizon? I'm unaware of any. And it gets at this issue that we are really in the infancy of fully understanding what the root cause of male infertility low sperm count, a low sperm count of unknown reason. There are data to support various changes in how somebody behaves, including what they put in their bodies, can affect their fertility. For example, we know that men who lead an incredibly sedentary lifestyle have lower sperm counts on average. We know that men who smoke tobacco at a threshold level have lower sperm counts compared to those who don't. And we know that men who smoke marijuana habitually have this exact same phenomena, and maybe even in a more severe way. What we don't know is what are the things that somebody can go to the natural food store or the grocery store or the drug store and buy off the shelf and put in their body and improve their fertility. There is very little data on that. If somebody's carrying extra weight? You know, the data, absolutely, the answer is yes. If it's something you can do to live longer, it's probably going to improve your fertility as well including weight loss, stress reduction, strong nutrition, and we see this play out time and time again. So I don't think we can neglect the obvious things. Uh, we can't, you know, we think about things like metabolic syndrome, you know, obesity, high lipids, diabetes. These things have a significant impact on fertility for the individual. But across a large population, it's very difficult to measure these things. But if it's something that's going to shorten your lifespan, it's probably going to lessen your fertility. And we see data beginning to accumulate on this. So and, if we're speaking to a young audience of yeah. uh, developing young men, we tell them don't smoke, stay healthy, try to watch your weight, don't indulge in marijuana, overindulgence in alcohol, and don't take testosterone or testosterone yeah. supplements. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. uh, it, Testosterone is a critical, you know, I can't go many places today or watch many things on TV or listen to many ads without hearing something about testosterone. And I think it's really important for physicians and patients alike to understand that testosterone in various forms, and it's many forms, is a, the most potent contraceptive in men. It's just like putting a woman putting an oral contraceptive pill in her mouth. So the uh, young athlete who's trying to... Uh move up is putting his potential fertility at risk. That's right. That's so right. another reason for young men to be aware. Absolutely. So in a sort of order of magnitude of a man comes to you, he's got a low count, you do an exam, you find a varicocele. That's extra veins. Yeah. So, um, ver you know, what is varicocele? Well, most Probably most of your listeners have heard of things called varicose veins, and there are a few ways in which varicose veins manifest in the human body. Um, we've probably seen a man or a woman at the beach in the summertime with dilated veins in their legs. We've probably heard of things called hemorrhoids. 
These are all varicose veins. Varicocele is the manifestation of these ill-behaving veins as they drain blood from a man's testis. So all men have veins that drain blood from the testes. Veins serve a very singular purpose in all humans, to bring blood from an organ back to the heart to recirculate. And it should be a one-way street. Varicoceles are veins that have lost their ability to be a one-way street, and under the influence of gravity, blood pools in these veins and it alters function. In men, it can cause pain in the testis, but it can also cause dysfunction of how sperm are formed and how they behave, and it can alter their ability to fertilize an egg. And what we know is that it's probably one of the more common reversible negative influences over male fertility and something we can actually take action on. It can be treated with a minor surgery or a minor procedure, but it, need, it may not be the ultimate etiology in all men, but it's something that should be examined for. And uh, as you mentioned, a review, a thir thorough review of medical history and medications. There are some medications that can put fertility at risk? There are, and it is a long list. I think the, the ones that I like to talk about are the most obvious ones. We already mentioned testosterone as an FDA-approved medication is probably the most common threat to male fertility. But any of the treatments that we would consider cytotoxic, so any therapies that are being used to treat cancers, to treat severe inflammatory conditions, rheumatoid arthritis, things like that, things that are stopping normal cells in the body from dividing and proliferating, those are the same medications that can have negative influence over sperm production. Medications that alter a man's hormone profile, uh, certain diuretics like spironolactone also act as anti-androgens and have a negative, very negative influence. Some of the medications we use to help men urinate better um, that are ubiquitous amongst men of a certain age can alter the ejaculate and they can alter spermatogenesis in some cases. But the medication that I think is really important and we see most commonly used in this era are the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor family, so which we see so commonly across age categories for the treatment of mood disorders. Multiple studies have demonstrated that these medications have a clear negative impact on sperm production, the ability of sperm to swim, and probably their ability to fertilize an egg. If we were to look at the potential of a, um, say, a middle-aged man achieving fertility, it, it, it's been said that as we age, we lose some of our ability to produce good sperm. It has been said. Um, <laughs> Look, the production of sperm is a labor-intensive process. It requires massive amounts of cell division, and as cells are dividing in the human body, there are many checks and balances along the way that make sure that if we're, we're going to reproduce a cell, that once it goes through that process, we get an exact duplicate. We get the exact DNA copy of that cell. Unfortunately, as we age, and it's the process by which we age, those checks and balances become less effective. And in this really demanding process where a man is literally producing hundreds of millions of sperm, the process does break down and the quality control mechanisms whereby we maintain DNA fidelity break down, along with production breaks down. So for all men, we see a decline in the ability to produce sperm over the lifespan. No man is exempt from that. 
and along the way we probably see declines in quality as well. Isn't there a statistic about higher risk of autism or schizophrenia? So the di- the dis- older yeah, so the diseases, th- thank you, so the diseases that have been specifically associated with advanced paternal age are exactly those, the autism spectrum disorders and schizophrenia. And then looking at a population that could be at risk, you mentioned somebody going through chemo. We'd advise those patients prior to starting any chemotherapy or radiation to sperm bank to preserve potential future fertility. Yeah, so anybody who's going under a reproductively compromising therapy, whether they're being treated for testis cancer that's required to actually remove the testis, or another cancer, lymphoma, radiation treatment, one of these cytotoxic medications, I think it's really critical that not only providers or healthcare providers be informed of it, but that patients themselves advocate for their fertility preservation. And that's something that's readily available. One of the challenges here in the U.S. is that reproductive care, including fertility preservation, is not economically available to everyone. And that's one of the greatest challenges we face, and one of our critical needs is to look for ways to provide this support for people, young individuals undergoing these type of compromising treatments. Most young men who are embarking upon cancer treatment, they don't have the resources to imagine the hundreds or the thousands of dollars of cost in fertility preservation, and the resources are limited. For a uh, group of our servicemen who in this modern era of warfare face IED blast injuries, there is some relief and potential for them to sperm bank before and then some help if they do sustain an injury. Yeah. And, th- and this type of support is relatively new and, and really excites us. Um, it's one of the, the methods by which these men are actually um, have available to them really expensive care, the use of in vitro fertilization through their veterans' health benefits. Which is a temporary but, bill that we're pressing to become permanent, permanent. Yeah. because it expires through the VA in September of this yeah. year. So we're hoping that it will be a permanent, signed into permanent law through the MILCON. It's currently enacted through the MILCON's Appropriations Act, but it's only temporary. and. Um, on Capitol Hill, there are veterans who've come out in their wheelchairs from having sustained blast injuries and have the service-related infertility, who, who say, you know, we've given our lives for our country, support us in our attempt to build a family. So I would encourage anyone who cares about this issue to write to your lawmaker. <laughs> and I think, you know, one area that, that this has been a challenge is that it is a, a narrow group of individuals where their fertility concerns are really attributable to the injuries that they sustained. And there are a whole other group of people who have served in the armed forces, served in foreign wars, who we don't know why their sperm count is low. It wasn't due to an IED blast. And currently this bill does not support them moving on for further treatment and and can pose some challenges. Well, as we wrap up, anything else you want to pass on to the listeners? I have a question for Dr. Walsh. Mm -hmm. Can you speak to the 
recent headlines in like Newsweek and Time about the sperm count crisis in the West, are these due to environmental factors or what could these be attributed to? Because it does seem to be a phenomenon. There was even um, a scientist surmised that if a scientist from Mars came to Earth and looked at sperm counts here, they would think that we might go extinct in like a couple generations. Yeah, that that's science fiction um, <laughs> at the extreme. So there's an agenda here, right? This idea that sperm counts are declining in the Western world has been reported for quite some time. And there are real challenges sort of in evaluating this kind of data, including we evaluate sperm quality in so many more men in the last five years than we ever did compared to a referent group, which is one of the greatest challenges. You know, how do we really, do we really have apples to compare to apples or oranges to oranges? What I don't, is causing that so, increase in testing? Is it just the access to reproductive medicine deriving Oh, I think absolutely a, a laundry list. But I would go back, I would use my parents as an example. My parents started having children mm-hmm. when they were in their early 20s. Okay. So in that generation, it was really common patient, you know, parents from my parents' generation, the good time generation, they began their family planning sometimes out of high school, sometimes out of college. But we are now in an era where it's much more common for women to begin their reproductive lives in their mid to late 30s. Now, this is a great, I call it the great unveiling, right? Because the term we would use is fecundability, or the fecundity of a woman at that age is much lower. And so the threshold that it requires for her to become pregnant is much higher. And so there there probably, the question is, is it possible that there were men amongst us who had, you know, sperm counts that were below, you know, I'm putting my fingers up in quotes, the normal range, but we never revealed them because their partners were so easily impregnated. And I really believe that's true, and I think many authorities do. But now we're pulling back the curtain because these men, their sperm counts are in a certain range, but the challenge of initiating a pregnancy in a woman of a much more advanced maternal age is much more challenging. And so I think we're discovering a lot more low sperm counts. What I don't know is, were they there before? Now, I don't say this to discount the idea that it's something that requires our attention. The environment that we live in today, my personal behaviors, your behaviors are different than my parents' generation as well. Right. My parents drank their milk from glass bottles. Mm-hmm. My kids drink from plastic. You know, what we're exposed to environmentally, I think is a ding, different ding, milieu. Ding, cell phones. It, it's a different milieu than before, and I think it does require our attention. We know that these plasticizers, these ubiquitous plasticizers, which we think we know the names of them all, but we've only heard a few, right? I mean, the moment we discover one that we think has a negative impact on a human hormone profile, I can guarantee the industry has changed the isomer in there, you know, and we just don't know what it is yet. So we are, we are bathed in these things. They flow through our vents in the hospitals. They are part of the materials we sleep in, we clothe ourselves in, and they are different 
it is a, a different landscape and a different environment. It requires our attention. Um, do I believe we're going extinct? I really don't. Very I'm, I'm doubtful and alarmist, and but I it think, got people's attention, right? <laughs> but I do, and I, but and I think you know this attention's important, but it it is also being championed by a few strong voices. Any other resources for listeners that they could find online besides Resolve? So I think a great resource for the some of the basic conditions that affect men and male fertility is auahealth.net is a great resource for patients uh, as with regards to just some health conditions affected that, that men may be affected by. They may hear terms from their doctors. It's a great patient-friendly resource. The Society for the Study of Male Reproduction, which is a, a sub-society of the governing body of urologists, also has a website with great resources. So that's SSMR. Um, and and resolve.org. And resolve. <laughs> Resolve.org, yeah. of course. Not only for those support resources, but for the great content on its website, which has the, the encyclopedia of, of different fertility factors that can be yeah. diagnosed. And uh, Sexual Medicine Society in America, <clears throat> Sex Health Matters is the patient portal. Yeah, Sex Health Matters is a fantastic portal for information. And I think last but not least, for people who really want statistics about reproductive treatments and their outcomes, I would urge visiting SART.org, S-A-R-T dot O-R-G, which is a resource for the Society of Assisted Reproductive Technology. Well, I thank you both for spending some time. It was wonderful and enlightening. Appreciate it. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having us here. This completes another podcast chapter of the Washington State Urology Society's original Guide to Men's Health. This is Dr. Richard Pellman reminding you to take care of yourself. The Washington State Urology Society wishes to thank all contributors who volunteered their time and knowledge. The information presented is the opinion of the speakers. The Society also wishes to thank Sean Fox for his invaluable technical assistance. Music theme, San Juan Bells, written and performed by Dr. Dave Whiting. The podcasts are the property of the Washington State Urology Society. Reproduction and use without the express consent of the society is strictly prohibited. For more information about men's health, visit wsus.org or visit your physician or care provider.